welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. So in, in this regard, like what I think is very, very clear to someone in the actual experience of birth, for instance, is that you like come up to the veil between life and death. And there's, in many indigenous cultures, there's stories that, you know, speak to that, you know, that idea of like, when you're in labor and giving birth, you are somewhere else and you go somewhere, you know, a lot of the stories center around like going to another place to fetch your baby and bring them earthside, you know? And what I think that is speaking to is how you are confronted in a way that's unshakable and unavoidable with the reality of your own mortality. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation where we pick up right where we left off and jump straight in. Enjoy the episode. So coming back to birth and and I really appreciate you guys letting me go on that tangent. Um, and <laughs> Actually, I think I want to bring it. Can I connect the two? Please. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I think that one of one of the things that's really interesting is this, you know, that you're bringing up about this idea of the, this hierarchy, right? This desire to have a leader mm-hmm. is really interesting to me because it's not just about, hey, show us the way to go, right? Guide us and <laughs> save us. But there's also a bit of a, of like of a you're the person to blame if things go wrong energy around it, right? And I find that that dynamic really comes into play when folks choose to birth in the hospital sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something about um, the way that you can approach birth where you can choose to kind of not engage with it fully, if you like, right? For Mm -hmm. the for the engagement with it to be like, it's really up to you. It's, it's totally on your terms. I mean, it has an impact on the way that the, the process unfolds, of course, but I, I think it's really interesting how I think often unconsciously, sometimes folks want to give birth in the hospital because they want to be able to put that on the doctor to just say like, you know, here, you're responsible for the outcome now. Um, And I was just thinking about this because another doula friend and I were talking about how sometimes there are things that if they happen in a home birth, um, people and by people, I I mean, like, you know, um, even folks like peer reviewing studies, right, will sometimes have this thought that like, oh, if they'd been in the hospital, the outcome would have been different. Mm. And yet. And yet when the outcome is the same at the hospital, nobody thinks like, oh, if they'd been at a home birth, it would have been different. They, right. they, they kind of are more willing to be like, well, that's just how it is, you know. But when, when it happens at, at home, even when it is really just how it is, right? Because there are, there are times when, you know, the birth doesn't play out the way you expected it to. Yeah. I mean, I would say every time, actually, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, sometimes the outcome is more wanted than not. Um, and I think that one of the one of the pieces that I've been really appreciating 
about certain people's work is how it really encompasses and really invites people to engage with source on a more like on a more um, fully embodied way. And what I mean by that is like for me, when I got pregnant, I from the get go, it felt like every decision was life or death. Um, I, I know that was, you know, my own mind making it up but that's definitely how how I took it and what I mean by that is that when I was considering you know what I wanted to do and I was given you know as fat black feminine uh the United States I dealt with a lot of assumptions about <laughs> who I was what I was doing and why and all the rest of it um but the you know there was a lot of kind of like a lot of weight on things like, you know, when they were, when they <laughs> said that I couldn't eat soft cheese or mm. sushi, it was like, if you do, you or the baby will die. And it was like, <laughs> no damn. questions. And you're a terrible person. <laughs> that, got, that that went real hard, real fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then there was a, Similarly, oddly, there was a very casual kind of like, you know, um, sort of like, you know, amniocentesis is no big deal or, mm-hmm. you know, um, having an ultrasound at every appointment is no big deal or even like have a surgery and take your baby home today, mm-hmm. which yeah. one even though those are like documented risk factors, like, <laughs> exactly. those are proven. <laughs> Exactly. It was like the bias is so there all the time. But also there's like for me, it was like I was very I really wanted responsibility over the choices that I was making. And I really wanted to think about, you know, so when even though I was only 29 with my first, they were like, you know, we are worried. We think we should, you know, you should consider amniocentesis. Mm -hmm. That's not usually something you recommend to someone you know, 29. First pregnancy, 29. Like, yeah. probably not necessary. Um, but, but I remember, like, you know, doing all this research into it and thinking about it and then, like, really asking myself the question, like, if I do this and um, the baby dies, will I be able to live with myself? Mm. And if I don't do this and the baby dies or has some other situation that I I find unlivable with, you know, will I be able to live with myself for having made that choice, right? And that drove a lot of my decision making. And at the time, I remember not mentioning it to a lot of people, because a few of the people that I did say this to were like, whoa, like, it's not that deep, you know, but Mm. for me, I really believe it is that deep. And I think that part of what that did for me was it really freed me from any illusion about what what it might be like should the outcome be one that I wasn't wanting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, it made me, I thought about that a lot when my brother died um, when I was pregnant with my second um, born, because mm-hmm. I just remember thinking about how, you know, he died very suddenly and he was in Tanzania and I was here and it happened too fast for me to be able to go over there and be with him. And it was like my mind couldn't take it in because we were separated, 
you know? Mm. And because I'd never really even considered the possibility that my brother might not, like, be an old person with me. Mm. So it was very jarring. Whereas with my with my children, even when things got really hairy, you know, um, when an emergency cesarean became necessary, when I hemorrhaged, it was very, like... Mm. It didn't feel like shocking and unbelievable. It was just like, okay, well, what do we want to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think um, all that to say that I think it's it's so helpful to really encourage birthing people, um, people who are engaging with source in, in, in this way, you know, in these like big transitions to consider like, you know, what, what is that Buddha saying? Like picture the picture the vase broken is that what it is i don't know have have either of you heard of this thing i don't think so there's this um i can't remember where i read it but it's this i believe (laughs) um (laughs) buddhist um uh mandate i guess or or philosophy that talks about um picturing what like whatever you really treasure picturing it broken Mm. and the idea is to help you to not be attached to it in a way that is unhealthy you know like to love something as opposed to like need it yeah which and i think that that's really necessary because you know there's no there are no guarantees in life and i think that one of the most dangerous things in my opinion about the medical industrial complex is that there's an assumed guarantee there's this implied Mm. guarantee that if you do whatever we say whenever we say it you'll be okay and I think mm-hmm. that that's the same lie that the greatest system sells us. You know, if you do what we say when we say, you'll be okay. And we know that that's not true. And and mm-hmm. black people in particular know that yeah. that's not true, mm-hmm. because there are generations of us who've done, you know, what they were told to, when they were told to, how they were told to, and they were not okay. And we're not okay. And nobody's okay, really. Mm-hmm. Even the people who think they're okay mm-hmm. are not okay. Thank you for coming to my very depressing TED yeah, and, talk. And, um, I'll turn it over to Chelsea now. No, this is this is so perfect. I love this because you're speaking into you're speaking into everything that needs to be said, and it's so perfect because I love that idea of you know picture the things you love most broken because that idea is so threatening to empire because like you said one of the tenets of empire is certainty, right? One of the empire's empirical mandates is you can trust what we do. And if you just give us everything, we will give you certainty, right? Mm-hmm. And and yet so many of the systems that have come from that from the very beginning, and certainly now as they've metastasized and grown cancerous, are just broken. And yet when you call it out, you get this incredibly visceral emotional response of fragility, right? And so like, mm-hmm. I I am I am sitting in the middle of the oppressing tribe, right? I am a white male son of a landowner. So there's there's you you can't get more white privilege than my body. Um and and so I'm inside the tribe where I have people all around me who are reacting out of fragility. And so I love the term white fragility because it's so salient for our time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's too small because white fragility is just a shortcut that really talks about power fragility in general. 
And it just simply names that white people are in power. But that's not the, that's not, that's not where it ends, right? Because males are in power for the long time. The, the Judeo Christian North American church was in power. Um, landowners are in power. All so, and I, and I check the box of every category, right? So you have white fragility, male fragility, Christian fragility, uh, landowner fragility, personal property fragility. You have all of these responses. And anytime someone says, Hey, what if we just reconsider this in a way that we don't assume that the way things are today is the best it could possibly be? Then those who are enjoying things as the best they could possibly be become existentially threatened because essentially what you're saying is that their world is not the real world, which of course it isn't. But since the world has been centered on them, and I love what you said about the hospital data, right? Like when Mm -hmm. things go wrong at home, people say, oh, the outcome would have been different in a hospital. But when it's the same outcome in the hospital, no one questions it. That's the narrative of empire centering, right? When, when the normative structure is a hospital birth and every reference point is built off of that, that's the center of the narrative. That's the empire. That's the core. And when you begin to question that, it becomes threatening. And they begin to say, well, no, you know, you can't do that. You can't just take things into your own hands. You have to come to us for certainty and we will give it to you. And that just fundamentally, that, that power of that language of power, those power structures that create those centering norms have failed too many people for too long. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, it also, in terms of the word fragile, when it comes to kind of reorganizing some of these structures and putting them together in a different way and, you know, spreading out the power, it it makes people that currently have the power feel like it's going to be stripped from them. Instead of just empowering everyone, right, it feels like you have to have it taken away from you. So in terms of like owning the land or um, having the power as the male in the relationship and stuff like that, like your your power is threatened because you feel like it's going to be taken away. Whereas, okay, so keep right? going, keep going. Yeah, you're good. I got, yep, keep going. Well, in terms of like the hospital dynamic, right, one of the one of the first things that I try and drill into people's heads, either in the childbirth education classes or as a doula, um, is that like you, you are the power in the room. You should be the power in the room. Um, but you empowering yourself doesn't negate the role of the midwife or the doctor. Like they're there for a reason. They have a role. It's important. So you, you claiming power for yourself you know, I don't see that it necessarily threatens the power structure as is, right? You still have a role. You still have a um, a job to do. Yeah, I don't know. I see, I don't see it as a one or the other. Like you have to give power to one and take away power from the other necessarily. Yeah. Um, I think you can both own your own moments of power. Okay, so can, can I share my own little moment of revelation as a white male from a Judeo-Christian background. So please do, Kevin. We're we're all holding our breaths. <laughs> no, let's let's just honestly admit that the world has heard enough from white male Judeo-Christian people. You are allowed. We can just be honest about that. <laughs> um, so 
I've been thinking a lot about like these power structures and fragility and things like that. And, and think, thinking about it within my own self and paying attention to it and thinking about it within the networks and systems that I participate in. And I had this moment just the other day where I was out driving and I saw an ambulance behind me coming with lights on. So, and I was pulling a trailer at the time, right? I'm a farmer. So I had my big truck with my trailer cause I was moving stuff around and had to get off the road. And so there was already a little bit of heightened kind of blood pressure just from that scenario. And the person who was behind me didn't see the ambulance behind them. So they just kept driving on down the road. I started honking at them. Anyway, they, so they, they passed me and then got off the road. The ambulance went by and then they got on the road and kept going. And what I noticed was there's this immediate spark, this immediate moment inside of me that was like, Hey, but I was in front of them. Right. Like, mm. and, and it, and what it told me was, Oh, that is the seed of power fragility inside of my own body and inside of anybody that experiences that feeling that literally nothing was taken away from me. I lost no rights to the road. I, you know, I was going to get home at the exact same time because I had to stop for the ambulance anyway. Literally nothing was taken away from me. And I still felt that there might have been something wrong with that situation. Like in that small of a scenario of just driving on the road, pulling over for an ambulance and someone else getting in line, like that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, if I can trace the evolution of that emotion through my whole life in all situations, I will have mapped power fragility in my own body. I think and you I need think to give yourself a little bit more grace though. <laughs> I mean, behind the wheel of but the do car, I, but do I, everyone is a do monster. I? No, but I think that's what it is. I think I think the only difference is that white people have just gotten used to being the ones who things go their way for, right? But I think hmm. all of us, right, like whatever you – like all of us experience that moment of like when I feel like something's being taken away from me and it's not, Maybe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we can all maybe have some understanding of like, oh, if we take that too far, if we start taking that into how we give bank loans and how we structure governments and how we give money to schools and how we give money to police and you start carrying it into too many places, then you can be like, oh, I see how if you get too many people in the same room thinking the same way, you end up with a really lopsided power structure that's incredibly damaging. Mm -hmm. And no one loses anything by restructuring that. You just think that you do because now there's a different car in front of you. But you're still going down the same road. You're still going to get home just fine. Mm -hmm. Yes. In terms of an analogy, that is that is a good one. But I definitely have my moments of road rage. And <laughs> you're so I human, definitely... Chelsea. Does that, does that mean that you're a human being like the rest of us? <laughs> Absolutely. I actually drag raced in my little... Hyundai Santa Fe on the highway, there was a Tesla who pulled up next to me and made eye contact. And then we literally not officially drag raced, but we raced each other for two hours to try <laughs> and stay in hours, front. No for way. two hours. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> where like did you end up in like Ottawa or where where'd you go? Yeah, I was actually supporting one of my friends that was in Toronto. So it was a three and a half hour drive. So I was in a hurry anyway. But um, I had to turn off first and it actually killed me. Like I, I wanted to keep driving to see if I could 
like make him cave first. <laughs> I will compromise my entire schedule just so I don't have to lose. I will miss I mean, if there's, the birth of if this baby. If there's not anything more American than that, Chelsea, I don't know what is. <laughs> hey now. Hey now. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate you naming um, the white privilege aspect um, and the all the other privileges. I think that there's there's definitely like actually this reminds me of birth as well because I think there's there's this expectation that if you are doing something good for the world that you're gonna get something out of it, as in you know that you're gonna mm-hmm. feel good, right? That's that's like our minimum. <laughs> for um being willing to do Mm -hmm. good things it seems like um of course you know marketing charity marketing is not helpful in that regard because it's definitely cultivating that idea right that if you're doing something good in the world you should be getting something for it like you should get a pair of shoes somebody with no shoes gets shoes but um (laughs) but um i think in the birthing space there's there's also sometimes an expectation that if you're moving forward in the birth, you should feel good, you know? Um, and I think that it's it's really interesting um, because l- like most things in life, part of what's required or part of what birth calls out of you is um, grit, you know, mm-hmm. is a willingness to be like, you know, to accept what's happening, to say like, this sucks or I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And then to make a decision about whether you're going to do it or not and how you're going to do it, you know? And um, it's it's not really as much about whether you have, you know, all the latest gadgets or what room you're in as much as it is like, what what do you want to do? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I always think of birth, of pregnancy and birth in particular as such great preparation for parenting, because <laughs> I think that's what our children are here to do all the time as well. It's like they're relentless teachers who believe in you like way more than you would ever believe in yourself and they will not stop inviting you to choose how you want to be in the world even when you're like please i don't want to be invited i just want to sit in the toilet and cry back off shut the door (laughs) let me eat this chocolate this crying chocolate by myself for a minute please i'm in the garage for a reason right now go away (laughs) <laughs> and they're like, but how do you want to be? <laughs> so, Ajiri, you said something a couple times now that I think is beautiful, and I just want to hear more about it. You've said this phrase, and you've related these terms in a few different ways, but I'm just going to say it this way. You talk about people who are engaging with source and transitions as being mm-hmm. a sacred space. Can you keep unpacking that for us yes um i think that it can be limiting to think of these things in isolation and i think it's one of um you know one of the great like unnamed costs to all of us um of of colonization and all of that jazz is that it it's it separated us so much from so much. And by that, I mean that, you know, if you've ever been to a birth or even spoken to somebody who's been through a birth and had them like kind of talk you through some of that raw experience, I think you'll find 
that there's a lot about it that's unknowable and undescribable and or indescribable even and that is just like bigger than we can than we have words for and that thing whatever that is you know i think people call it different things i think of it as you know source or the universe or the creator because i don't believe in an old white man on a cloud um i'm so glad to hear that because <laughs> there isn't one <laughs> i giggled but you couldn't hear it um and and i have lots of thoughts around what you know how that serves the empire that entire story of you know to to be told that God is a reflection of you and also that God is an old white man on a cloud is such, is to cause such trauma in so many people's bodies. Like just to, to have that cognitive dissonance of like, how can I be a reflection of a God who doesn't look like me? What does that mean about me? Does it mean that I'm not real or that they're not real? Or maybe that I don't see? So in in this regard, like what I think is very, very clear to someone in the actual experience of birth, for instance, is that you go to, you know, you're, you, you like come up to the veil between life and death. And there's, in many indigenous cultures, there's stories that, you know, speak to that, you know, that idea of like, when you're in labor and giving birth, you are somewhere else and you go somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the stories, center around like going to another place to fetch your baby and bring them earthside, you know? And Mm -hmm. what I think that is speaking to is how you are confronted in a way that's unshakable and unavoidable with the reality of your own mortality, you know, but even more so with your, excuse me, but even more so with your autonomy, because you I mean, it's like you have this feeling when you're in at some point in your labor where like everything in your whole body convinces you that there is a wall. There's a wall in front of you. There's a wall in front of you and there's no way through that. You can't climb it. You can't go around it. And the truth is that there is no wall, you know, (laughs) the truth is that that you can make a door in that wall whenever you want. You can make the wall disappear by just walking forward. But that moment of confrontation with getting to a point that you think is your, is your deepest and then discovering that there's more, that stuff is magic. I mean, that stuff is magic. That's why I say to all of my clients that like after they give birth, Nobody can tell them nothing, okay? (laughs) Because you learn just how powerful you are and just how little you know of your own power. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy.
this idea that the the Ellen labor and delivery ward is equipped to support a like naturally progressing uninterrupted uninterfered with process is is unreasonable that's not what that space is designed for that's a you know a department and a hospital whose sole purpose you know, from the noblest perspective is to provide healing in the case of injury or illness, right? And in the least noble um, perspective, it's a business. <laughs> so <laughs> it's in the business of making money. And so what it has, you know, what you have to think about in order to keep a business going is very different than if you're just at home trying to give birth, trying to wait for it to happen. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now.